Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. You're a big collector of rare books, uh, particularly those by John Dewey. Uh, so I'm, I'm fascinated to learn what have you discovered in his rare collection of yours that perhaps I wouldn't find out by looking up Wikipedia's en- entry for John? Yeah, that's great. I am. And, uh, you know, a lot of people don't uh, realize that John Dewey wrote um, over a thousand pieces in his career that appeared in books and periodicals and magazines. He actually even wrote a piece for uh, Good Housekeeping in Ladies Home Journal, which is interesting. Um, <laughs> and, and the way uh, school worked back in the 19. 19- uh, 20s was a big part of his writing and it appeared everywhere. One of the most interesting things I've discovered as I've kind of, um, you know, kind of peered through uh, many of his writings, he actually wrote, um, created a chart that appeared in uh, the school and society uh, right at the turn of the century, 1905, uh, 06, right in there. Um, and, and it showed the progression of the curriculum from kindergarten all the way through post-secondary school. And what was fascinating about it was he showed the overlap when we transitioned from kindergarten to elementary school, elementary school to middle school, middle school to high school, high school to, to college, and how much overlap there was in the curriculum. And he wrote, he, he drew this beautiful chart that appears in the book. And a hundred years later, we're still grappling with, with you know, what to teach um, as part of the curriculum. Um, and it was really fascinating because he called it the waste because we would just, you know, as, as kids transition from one building to the next or one grade to the next, we had so much overlap in, in what we were teaching. And I found that just fascinating that he was on to something, you know, even then. And obviously, you know, he is the father of progressive education and his ideas about uh, life experience and making education life itself and, and getting, you know, away from kind of rote memorization as the skill set that kids would need in the 20th century. So much rings true even today in the, in the 21st century. I'm talking today with Dr. Sean Smith, uh, best-selling author, uh, education futurist, CEO of Modern Teacher and co-founder of the Futures Institute. Sean, it's good to, uh, to see you again on my screen. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it and I um, uh, appreciate you having me on today. You know, you, you mentioned uh, sort of Dewey's vision of, of the future of education in the 20th century. Uh, I mean, 100 years on um, from a lot of the, that discussion and, 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 um, and I guess Dewey's ideas, how different are classrooms today? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a really, really good question. And I think, you know, as, as educators and, and leaders and educational reform, you know, folks, really think about um, not only what we want kids to learn, um, but how we actually go about teaching that. Um, many of the same things, you know, Dewey was arguing about 100 years ago, um, we're still pressing on to try to really envision what that classroom of the future is. And I think for me, when I, when I think about it, it boils down to this fundamental question. We have to teach kids how to think because the knowledge you know, five years from now, 20 years from now, 100 years from now, is going to constantly change as society progresses, you know, the types of things we're going to need kids to do to be um, gainfully employed, skillful, uh, find their place in society, contribute meaningfully to society. We have to teach them how to think and not just what to think about. And and I think those are the the underlying belief systems that Dewey had um, 100 years ago. We're still 
you know, I think top of mind for folks that are really trying to move the needle on on reform. Does the fact that we're still so stuck on the what to think, is it a reflection of still that industrial mindset of preparing people for a, a very sort of structured workforce? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think, and I think, you know, what's really fascinating, I like to think about um, kind of the needs of society um, in four big phases. Huh. Um, there was the, you know, agricultural age in which, you know, schools predominantly existed um, for life in, you know, in, in rural America or rural wherever you are. We then quick, you know, moved into the industrial age and we obviously mimicked, you know, that mass standardization. So we, we moved millions of kids, um, you know, out of poverty into the middle class um, and we standardized that process. What's fascinating, though, about the next two, you know, kind of uh, big phases, um, one was this idea of all built on the knowledge economy and that was the, you know, Internet boom. And we just very quickly moved into the knowledge economy. But we moved out of that really fast, too. And what, you know, Daniel Pink calls the conceptual age and the idea of the knowledge economy really only lasted about 20, 25 years. I mean, we just went through that really, really fast. And so now I think when we find ourselves in the ideas economy, we, we have to be able to, you know, teach kids how to think because the knowledge is, is just constantly changing. So I think it's part we moved out of that phase really fast, um, an economy built on knowledge to an economy built on ideas. And then I think you also just have your content experts. So it's a little bit of these competing interests because, you know, there are there's a level set of skills we need kids to have, how to read, how to write, you know, how to, you know, be a good citizen. Beyond that, though, you know, I think it, it becomes a big, a big argument about, you know, how deep in every subject do kids need to to master things. We'll come back to this question of future skills a bit later, but I mean, one of the the things you can say without a doubt is that the underlying technology in the classroom has started to change dramatically in the last few years. And, and you wrote a fascinating um, you know, piece about the programmable classroom. How are these elements of learning switching now from analog to digital? And, and, and really, what are we building now towards? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think, you know, at the onset of, of the 21st century, you, you started to see more technology, you know, creep into the classroom. I think a lot of American classrooms struggle with utilization um, and how to effectively use the technology in the learning process. While at the same time, you see elements inside the K-12 classroom slowly moving from analog to digital. You see assessments and, and how we assess, how we grade, how we can deliver learning experiences textbooks moving from analog to multimedia um, and interactive. So you see the elements inside the classroom slowly moving. Unfortunately, they're still disconnected. They're right. what I like to call single point solutions. And, and so they have to be, you know, kind of programmed together like a coordinated nervous system that can actually move in a, in a rhythm together to then ultimately, you know, change the, the ultimate output and the user experience at the end. And we're not right there yet. What does that broader ecosystem look like? Because this is not just what's taking place in the classroom. There's sort of levels of abstraction here with the, you know, with the school, with the district, with the, you know, with the region. Yeah, I think a, a great way to, in, in my head, the metaphor I like to use is, um, you know, think of your house. Um, you know, slowly the objects in your house moved onto the grid, right? And so you can, with voice automation, turn on lights, you can turn on your television, you can turn it off. Um, those things over time had to be coordinated together to actually create that smart home, um, if you will. 
And the more things become on the grid, the more we can predict behaviors because they're, you know, repetitive. You might come home from work every day at the same time, which could then, you know, cue up certain things to happen in the household. That needs to happen in the classroom as well so that we can change ultimately um, what happens for the, for the end user, which is the teacher and the student in what I like to call in the presence of content. And so, you know, <laughs> we could use voice activation. Teachers could, you know, be able to pull learning experiences for kids to personalize the experience and automate some of those processes that are very laborious for, you know, teachers. Great teachers know that, you know, how to, how to differentiate and personalize the experience because they know their students well. We can begin to use technology to do some of the things that teachers do and spend hours doing um, so that they, be, they can actually spend the time where it matters with kids, which is building relationships, you know, facilitating an experience for them that's, that's really, you know, more tailored and personalized. The, the metaphor you gave of the sort of the smart home um, is interesting because it's, it's a very emergent one. It's not like, you know, there was one manufacturer of home appliances and they sort of dictated a model by which everything was going to connect and they're all made by the same person. It's a sort of a framework of which things can plug into. And so I'm wondering with, ed- with education, because whether it's individual teachers or individual schools, having different instructional models is a, is a big part of, you know, the way you differentiate yourself. Uh, is there a yes. risk with, with these platforms that we're sort of trying to standardize one way of teaching for everyone? Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's actually, it's a, you bring up a really interesting point. I actually think it's it's two things. It's part is the instructional model that you talk about, that those teaching philosophies, pedagogies, um, how we interact with technology in the classroom and, and increasingly more outside of the classroom. Yeah, It's also the actual technological infrastructure. So not dissimilar. I mean, the metaphor that you gave it is perfect. There are a host of vendors or educational publishers that have hardware and software and content and devices that have to play in the same sandbox for it to work. And so uh, slowly, um, education is creating, you know, some standard um, processes, APIs that everybody has to be able to, you know, plug and play if it's going to be a coordinated ecosystem. And we're not there yet. There's no question about it. I mean, the transfer of information and data, privacy issues, um, you know, transferring information from one vendor that might do an assessment to another vendor that might actually deliver the content. Um, you know, those are some real struggles that the the industry is, is dealing with. I was fascinated. And it's sort of ironic, I guess, when we talk about technology, that a lot of the the most radical, brilliant thinkers in technology, like Jeff Bezos, Larry Page, Sergey Brin, actually, even Thomas Edison, were all Montessori educated. Uh, you know, with this sort of focus on um, independence and freedom. So are some of those ideas going to become more relevant than ever? And, and if not, I mean, has technology led to radical new type of instructional models that are now emerging that weren't possible before? Yeah, absolutely. And then obviously, I think the pandemic is just accelerating that because people have to actually, uh, you know, rethink uh, ways to actually deliver the educational experience. But um, yeah, and, you know, I think we have to untangle a lot of things. There's policies um, at the federal level, at the state level, at the local level um, that, you know, kind of tie into this. There's competing interests from subject matter experts and, and how we, you know, write curriculum. But ultimately, that disruption, I do think, is creeping across the states because of the fact that we have to be able 
to give kids those experiences that can transfer into society and help them actually become a functioning, you know, member of society that can contribute meaningfully to it. Mm. And just rote memorization, you know, is, is not cutting it anymore. And I think people are realizing that. And I, I think you make another really good point. You know, the Montessori method um, of educating kids, um, that freedom to explore, um, you know, I think is such a critical underpinning of how we have to think about this because it's, it's the complete antithesis of mass produced standardization of, of one way to do that. And so it's a big mind shift. Well, um, well traditionally that, yeah. that, that sort of Montessori model was difficult to scale. That, that was the whole point. You know, it, it required a lot of one-on-one attention, but if you were able to use technology to, you know, automate some of the other aspects, you could potentially start to go back to those more dynamic, highly personalized models. You can. And then, and then to think about workforce training and how do you get, you know, 3 million, you know, teachers across the U.S. and in other countries, obviously, have to think about this as well. But you have to scale what I like to call workforce proficiency. And so how do you get, a, you know, a, a labor force that's skilled at teaching that way? I mean, that's got to we have to rethink, you know, our training programs, our, our, our universities and colleges that are training the next generation of teachers to not only be able to be skilled at asking great questions in the learning process, but using the technologies to be able to automate and scale parts of that learning process that, you know, they don't need to be manually done anymore. And that's a real mind shift for people. People really struggle with that. What becomes the most important skill then for a teacher operating in that blended, augmented environment? Because yeah. pre- presumably it is, it, it's no longer the what anymore, you know, right. as, as much as, as you said before, the how. Yeah. I, I like to think about it in, in a couple of ways. A great teacher fundamentally understands what I call the practical term is that sweet spot of learning for every kid. Vygotsky called it the zone of proximal development. It's right there where, you know, you know enough that my teaching and my guiding and my facilitating can help you move from that point of learning to the next point. And it's not too difficult. Hmm. So teachers have to really understand that. And then they have to really get this idea of metacognition to help kids think about their own thinking. And that is the skill set of the future. That is where ideas are born. That's where creativity happens. That's where things that don't exist create original, you know, solutions to problems that, you know, society has. I mean, that's where the employment of the future is. And, and teachers have to be skilled at understanding how to teach that. How do we teach metacognition to be the executive control of your own thinking? Know what you know, know what you don't know, know where your misconceptions are. And that's a, that's a pretty deep thing to really train and teach on. And then how to use technology to be able to augment that and, and provide those pathways for kids in a more personalized way, which gets at motivation, it gets at interests. I mean, there's a lot of underlying things in the learning process that matter, that we know matter in that. To that extent, let, let's talk a little bit about um, the role of AI in, in education. Uh, you know, a big part of, of these new learning management systems is their ability to be able to, in a sense, understand where a student is at. And people tend to gloss over that, but, it, but actually it's an incredibly complex, nuanced and, 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 and you know, difficult to define um, concept. Do you think this AI approach at sort of guesstimating where a student's at is, is, is actually working? 
Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I think we're in our infancy of this. There has there was an interesting story last week where one of the learning management systems was able to do an, an immediate assessment using AI. So kids would turn in, you know, work digitally, answers to questions, and then the algorithm would score it based on a, a handful of factors. And there was a student that cracked the code hmm. and would literally write you know, word salad, a bunch of words, but knew a handful of key words that the computer would score correctly. And it was garbage. So we're, we're in our infancy. There's no question about that. <laughs> but I, I do think, you know, where we've made the most groundwork is, is this term called adaptive assessments, where we can, you know, you can really ask more difficult questions or easier questions as students answer them correctly or incorrectly. Largely, that falls in multiple choice right now, or true false. It's an either or, you know, linear answer. We're not as advanced in more open ended questions, given the example that I just gave. Um, but I do think that that information is providing kids reading levels, their math levels, um, and that can help tailor and target, you know, the right learning content for kids. But that's that's just the tip of the iceberg. That's what most teachers are probably familiar with today. I think there's so much more we can do with it, but we're not there yet. In the example you gave, I, I hope that kid got full marks because they may have been cheating, but their understanding of algorithmic systems was exemplary. Right, I, I, I agree. I, I agree. <laughs> I'm not sure the press caught on to that, and actually, you know, I'm not sure that was the outcome, but uh, it should be. I agree with that. Yeah, are we seeing a divergence in in approaches with the use of AI? I, I've seen people talk about the difference between a school, the future of a school being AI-led or AI is a replacement for teaching versus AI assistance. And when you look at some of these new giants emerging out of China, like Squirrel AI, I think I was reading yeah. part, part of their approach is sort of breaking subjects into these knowledge points. And, you know, whereas a textbook might have, you know, a couple of thousand of these, they, they would have 10,000 very sort of molecular nodes of knowledge so that they can I guess, design a very adaptive path through the information. Yeah, that's right. And, and Khan Academy would be another example here in, in, um, where, you know, those knowledge clusters, if you will, um, are mapped and, and then kids have pathways. Um, I, I do, I think there's a fear of, of AI. I think that's a, it's a myth that AI is going to replace teachers. Um, so, you know, I think it's, it's quite the opposite. I think we need more skilled teachers today than ever before as we think about the implications that AI can have. But what I do think it will do is it will change the way we actually can teach. Um, you know, I think there's a great quote that said, technology will not replace teachers. Teachers who use technology will replace those who don't. And I think that's where we're headed. And so what we have to do is we have to think about what purpose and role do we want the technology to play so that our teachers can be more effective in this. And there's a lot of things that technology can do. It's not going to replace the teacher, but it will, it might change what the teacher does with the student for sure. I don't know in the future if we need teachers, you know, spending five hours on the weekend, you know, grading papers like that may not be the best use of time for the teacher. But, but I was going to ask you more about this. I mean, what, what really is the role of, of the teacher in the AI powered classroom of the future? I mean, where do they, where would, do they add the most value? Yeah, I mean, I think it has to be relationship driven, right? At the end of the day, human beings, the connectedness, the relationships, that mentorness, that matters. I would also and, say and, and the modeling of behaviors, I guess, as well, right? 
A hundred percent. That's exactly right. And I, I think they're going to be a guide and a coach and a facilitator um, and a mentor. I also still think they're going to be a teacher, hmm. right? It's just, it's, we still need teachers to be, you know, subject matter experts, but we can augment that with technology in a way that, you know, changes maybe the conversation. And so maybe it's not exact modeling of how to solve Y equals MX plus B in slope intercept form. It might be, you know, our time together one-on-one may be very different. It may be, you know, you're thinking about being a rocket scientist and, and, you know, let's talk a little bit about that and let's, you know, help me understand more about your interests and your motivation. And, and then let me help connect the dots between why this is important or not uh, for that individual student. The other thing I would say is um, social emotional, you know, um, aspects of this um, and, and really being able to get to know kids, I think can completely change a child's life. You know, a middle school or high school teacher may see 100 to 150 kids a day, depending on their caseload and, and how many you know, courses they're teaching. So the ability to spend more time with kids in, in conversations that, that really matter and, and connect, I think, is the role for a teacher. And, and that's going to you know, involve a skill set of being a coach and a mentor and a guide and a facilitator, um, connecting the dots between the content and work and motivation and interest, and then personally just, you know, available for kids as they mature. Yeah. So if that's the teacher, what what about the principal and the district supervisor? How how do their roles change in in this new environment? Yeah. I mean, I wish every one of the principals and and district administrators that we work with will read the algorithmic leader because, (laughs) you know, what do, you, what do you do when um, technology and, and algorithms become smarter than, than you is, is a question. And so I, I, this is the, the number one skill set that I say will be for the principal of the future or the district administrator of the future is knowing how to navigate change. And that gets at human behavior of change management theory. And so people naturally are resistant to change. Most people are resistant to change. You will have a few that, you know, it creates excitement and curiosity and wonder. But for the most part, we're conditioned as human beings to not like change. And so how do you lead people through change? Well, part of that is understanding where you're leading people to, an effective communication strategy to paint that vision of the classroom of the future, and then understanding the the emotions that the people that you're leading are going to go through. Um, And then what are the leadership moves that you need to make when the vast majority of your, you know, staff is experiencing fear and anger and frustration um, where they're living one foot in the new world, but they're, they really want to live, you know, with both feet in the old world. How do you navigate that? How do you lead people through that? And I think you win that with hearts and minds. And, and I think we have to train our next generation of leaders to really be adept at change management. Well, one of the sort of immediate flashpoints that leadership in, in education are having to deal with is the role of algorithms. I mean, there's been already a number of high profile cases in the US. I'm thinking of like the Houston um, Teachers Board who, who went after a, an educational provider that you know was using algorithms to do performance reviews, but they wouldn't share the, the actual algorithm. And of course, in the UK, there's been that big controversy of the use of algorithms to, to mark A-levels because of COVID. Um, right. th- this is becoming explosive. Um, wh- what do you think 
the approach to these new flashpoints should yeah. be for educational leaders? That's a, it's a great question. So one is we have to have transparency mm -hmm. um, and we have to be really transparent about the standards that we're developing for the algorithm. We have to have people um, from all stakeholders that are engaged in the community around the education process um, involved in the conversation. And it can't, again, just, it it can't just be a proprietary secret, right? I don't think so. Now, you know, I, I, I don't think that's going to work. I think people are going to really, you know, kind of rebel um, at that. You're seeing that, right? I yeah. mean, you're seeing. So I think we have to have transparency in that. Now, at the same time, there's going to be some level of proprietary nature, especially if you're using, you know, a vendor or, a, you know, a publisher or whatever. I think that's going to be one of the key factors in this thing. It's going to be messy. We have to be comfortable with the fact that we're going to have you know, our visionary leaders that are going to go forward and we're going to all learn from them, right? Who's going first with, with a lot of this. But I will tell you, my fear is that the marketplace for education is changing. You know, see, in the past, schools were guaranteed customers based on the proximity of your school to your neighborhood. You walk to school. I mean, in the, in the, you know, in the past, we would, you would go to the neighborhood school where you live. That public education is not guaranteed a customer anymore yeah. because there are, there are options now because the world has changed. And my fear is that if we, if public education doesn't keep up with what's happening in the marketplace, we are, we see a rise in homeschooling. We see a rise in charter schools. We see a decline in public education, traditional public education. And it's because parents have new options today. We make distinctions between learning from home, remote learning, learning at school. Uh, I mean, not only are there more options, those boundaries are, are starting to blur, as we've seen, I think, in this pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. And, and those that were prepared, those school systems that were prepared that had invested in teacher training and technology um, and digital content were really leaps and bounds ahead of other school districts in the pandemic with remote learning hmm. because they had invested in it. And so I, I, you're right. I mean, I, I think learning today now is distributed and, and that's a key thing of the future. It's, that's not going to slow down. And so I think what I fear is it's going to be the, the story of when Blockbuster doubled down on the DVD instead of going with a streaming idea. And, <laughs> and you know, 10 years later, they got pummeled by Netflix and they're bankrupt. And it's one of those things where you don't know it's happening until it actually happens. Yeah. And and that, that's my fear, you know, for, for public education is we, we have to champion this or it'll be the end of public education because people just choose different options. You know, you'll have a society of have and have not. You know, I, I said at the outset, I, I wanted to come back to this, this uh, question of, of future skills. And we, we pay a lot of attention to the idea of using AI in education. But how do we educate people to make better use of AI in their careers? And I think... The jury's still out on, on the right way to do this. I mean, do you teach kids? Well, we know teaching kids Twitter and Snapchat is pointless. They know more about it than us. But even, right, right. even, even programming might not be the right approach because computer languages change all the time. So what really are going to be these new sort of foundational skills or curriculum that are going to prepare kids for the world they're moving into? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really good question. I mean, we saw, you know, even, you know, six, seven years ago, a big rise in like programming and coding classes for kids. You even saw, you know, new entrepreneurs and startup companies that had curriculum for coding and it very quickly became outdated. Um, and so again, I, I keep going back to 
Those that are going to write the algorithms of the future are those that I think have a combination of divergent thinking, convergent thinking. They can take whole pieces and put them together and make sense of them for people. They can take the whole and, and break it into its parts and make sense. That type of thinking is the skill set that we've got to develop. And, and you can use today's current context. I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with helping and teaching kids, you know, algorithmic thinking and, and what that looks like, but understanding that that's not the end point, really. That's, it's a way to help kids actually learn to think. I mean, you're seeing this in so many different fields of research, whether it's archaeology or astronomy, that they're not astronomy, it's computational astronomy or computational archaeology. I guess one thing that does excite me is that this could be a great way to engage kids who are instantly fascinated by technology about reapproaching some of these subjects in, you know, in not just a technical, but in a very analytical way. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it, it can start to level the playing field as well. I mean, if you can teach kids to approach subject matter in a different way, whether it's computational thinking or the world is their oyster. I mean, it's limitless in, in what they could go into. And then it backends the motivation then hmm. for wanting to know some of those, you know, discrete skills around the universe and astro astronomy or whatever the subject is. Um, it's kind of the flip when you get them, you know, I like to think about it as how does a teacher stimulate intellectual curiosity and then back into, well, if, you, if you're really curious about astronomy or the universe and how it works, you do need to learn some of these other discrete skills, right? And, and they may be a little bit more boring, but the, the intrinsic motivation changes because they become curious. And, and this really, you know, to your original point, becomes a skill of the teacher, being able to diagnose what that entry point is for a particular kid to get really excited by a subject. I mean, I had, remember I always struggled with economics till I had an economics teacher who realized I was contrarian. So, you know, <laughs> he said he recommended a whole bunch of books arguing that economics is a complete waste of time. But of course, in reading those, it actually made me really interested in economics. That's exactly right. That's, that's, that, that is exactly right. And that's what we need our teachers to be able to unlock in, in every kid, um, which I think is, which is key. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds. Thank you.